Mighty Mikey, Dan O'Hortuck, and welcome to the panel on RNZ National Wallace Japanese. Happy Friday. What would happen if only voters, not unions, not businesses, could donate to political parties? We look at money and politics in Aotearoa just after four. There's been a bit on that. Wellington Mayor Tori Fano now supports selling the city's airport shares after a change not to pay down debt with it, but instead setting up a green investment fund. Great idea or selling off the family silver? Wellingtonians, where do you stand on that? Text me 2101. And what kills 10,000 New Zealanders every year? Much of it avoidable. Find out at 4.45pm. And returning to Sally Wenley's story yesterday, she bought in her grandmother's cookbook and with it some fantastic, shall we say, old school recipes. Wait till you hear the recipe we have for you from Francis at 25 past four today. You can text me 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co. With me today, an urban strategist and founder of Places for Good. Now, that's a Tamaki Makoto-based community engagement collective, uh, Boopsy Moran. Welcome to the program. Tanakwe Wallace. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Also today, Peter Dunn, former United Future Leader and Minister Political Commentator. Kia ora, Peter. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to have you both in Boopsy Moran, Peter Dunn with us. And let's dip into the Friday mailbag. And a bit on this, I found this really interesting, this story. MPs using Koro Club, Air New Zealand Koro Club membership, the gift every MP gets but none declares, wrote Thomas Coughlin in the Herald, saying that unlike most MPs' perks, like flights and taxis, MPs' lounge access isn't actually paid for by... The taxpayer. Instead, a kind of access is gifted by the airline itself, which uh, was confirmed to them by the Herald, to the Herald by Parliament. Sue Bradford said that it was actually quite something to have your Coro Club declined when you stopped being an MP. Kind of an end of an era sort of feeling. And Sarah wrote in saying, when I was regularly travelling to Wellington, I noticed that our now outgoing MP, New Plymouth MP, Glenn Bennett, used to always have coffee in the morning in the public area of the airport so he could be available for constituents. Uh, Peter Dunn, uh, did you miss Coro Club perks? Maybe you still have it. Well, I'm a bit perplexed because I've still had them and they were never taken away, so I, I don't quite understand what all this what all this issue's about. Um, I think I think it's a technicality because I think it's got something to do with the airline regarding airpoints and those privileges as the possessions of the individual rather than the collective. Uh, but I, when I when the story first broke over the MP from Christchurch, I thought I, I think he's got it wrong. So I'm still a bit perplexed. So yours was never taken away. No, no. I've never heard of any suggestion until this week that it should have been. But I suspect probably I had enough air points for it not to be. I could imagine. Do you have Crow Club, Boopsy? No, I do not. But I do enjoy I think you get a lot of work done when you're in that area. I definitely think there's perks to it. But I do not have it. You don't have it. No, neither do I. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, also, car parks being displaced by cycle lanes and bus routes in Karangahapi Road, K Road. There, A bit of response on that. Nelson is terrified of losing car parks. Ironically, the busiest day for Nelson is Saturday morning when the Saturday market is on, which displaces hundreds 
of car parks. Still seems to work fine. You might have to walk 100 metres, though. Um, another one here, though, says, I'm so glad I don't have a shop on Karangahape Road anymore. Customers constantly complained about parking, and some wouldn't even bother coming into the, into the area. Parking on the side streets is terrible and often taken up by vans and service vehicles. Most people using the buses are commuters, not people shopping. And if you are selling large items, it is almost impossible for people to park and collect goods. You'd have a bit to say on this, Boopsie. Oh, I was just there twice today, um, once by car and once by bus. I think the number one thing when you do displace um, parking spots is the deliveries. Mm. I, I was wondering how they do it in Europe in those pedestrianized spaces. So I think um, we always need to think about that um, when they're getting their deliveries is always something that you need to look at. The loading zone, Peter Dunn, you've got to have those. Yes, you do. And we've, we've got a similar issue emerging in parts of Wellington, and I agree with Boopsie. The, the big issue is I think uh, commuters and uh, shoppers can accommodate that, but it's the deliveries, it's the it's the convenience of getting stuff in and out, and I just don't know how you compensate for that if you take all the parks away. You can't imagine people lugging great pieces of furniture through town, for instance. Yeah. Also, uh, boy racer issues in the community. We had Dylan in Tairawhiti, who <clears throat> is from the US. He's a graphic designer. He made, he has made Gisborne his home for the last six years. He says he feels he's so lucky to live in a, a beautiful part of the world. He has a small problem. His street has recently been favoured by the boy racer community. Uh, so all those Nissan. Uh, G3Ts, whatever the heck they are, but see, they make a hell of a noise. Um, people <laughs> responded. Uh, the problem in New Zealand, says one, is that vehicles' noise can be increased to, to a maximum for all cars, irrespective of the sound frequency. Now, in Europe, you can modify your muffler, but it has to be quieter than the original car. Also, in Europe, the noise samplers differentiate between the noise frequency. Lower frequency has to be lower than the high frequency. Also, any infringements are logged against the vehicle. Eventually, the cars are taken off the road. Thereby, the more infringements, the less of the value. Extraordinary deep dive there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for everyone who said that. Into regulatory practices in Europe, but nonetheless, the boy racer. It's about having respect in in your street. Well, I think um, the easiest way are those answers because, yes, they're always going to have their speeds. But if there's no, like they said, no um, no one giving tickets or no one implementing results for when they do do that, it's a problem. But I think same as the parking on K Road, we need to be looking at cities that urbanize before us that have these population densities. And just like the loading, the boy racers and all that, what are other cities doing to tackle those issues. We're, we're just starting to tackle them now. Another one here. Wallace in Napier, we have the same problem about boy races on Shakespeare Road. And the council put in speed bumps. It's made a huge difference. Maybe those guys could apply to the council for help. The council said they put the speed bumps down to slow traffic down for the school kids, but it's had a win-win anyway with the fast cars. What I do know, it's very difficult to get speed bumps in your street, you've got to go through a lot of hoops to do that. But uh, a small problem there for uh, for Dylan and Gisborne here, Peter. But nonetheless, it's quite annoying. Oh, I think it's very annoying, and I think I think it's bigger than boy races. It's, I mean, we live in a street that's uh, become a de facto thoroughfare because of other traffic changes around us. Right. And what we find is the number of cars that accelerate at great speed through this residential street. 
uh, they're just like a boy racer. They get a bit horrified when you sort of are in front of them and suddenly sort of slow down to turn into your garage, for instance. Uh, so I think it's a real issue, and I'm not sure that speed bumps or those sort of traffic calming measures are the answer. I think a better design of the flow of streets to make sure that people can get where they want to go is probably that. And what tends to happen is, you know, you close down one street or you modify that, and yeah. that, that creates an adverse behaviour somewhere else. I just don't think we're taking a big enough picture approach to this. Yes, I agree with Peter, and I think we're all just learning how to share. And I think it comes with all those different issues. We've just come in through the mailbox um, that we're all learning how to share a small road with lots of people and lots of different modes that didn't exist maybe 50 years ago. All right. Uh, now, also, oh, look at this. Gosh, um, I asked yesterday uh, about your heritage recipe. We've got, a, we've got a real doozy at 25 past four. You will want to hear this. <laughs> it's quite something to think that people ate this back in the what, 20s or 30s. Um, turn around, Boosie. Look at this. What, what have I just been sent? Oh, a Look, truth cookery book. The truth cookery book. Gosh, where, how long ago was this? Oh, the 1948 revised edition, including invalid, diabetic, and health cooking. Wow, that's amazing. Yep, yep. Festive holiday and picnic recipes and economical dishes from 1948. Gosh. I bet you there's an aioli recipe for they, me. Do, <laughs> do you think so? <laughs> Right. Do they have aioli in our 46? No, but the first yeah. time I was on this panel, they were teaching me how to make aioli. That's oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also games at school you loved. And we've got a big response to that, of course. And uh, predominantly bull rush. Mm. Johnny says, bull rush for testing yourself against the whole school. <laughs> <laughs> um, four square to display your fair flair to the class and gutter board for settling personal disputes. That's how we played in South Auckland in the 80s. Many thanks for the memories, says uh, Johnny. Uh, Bull Rush here, primary school, pretty rough. Quite a few boys played league and became competitive league players uh, as a result. One was quite notorious for grabbing your hair and swinging you around. Also, the knuckle bones competitions at our school were intense. Uh, Peter Dunn, a young Peter at school, what did you just... Oh, all of those. Bull Rush, I remember particularly uh, favourably. It was great on because we had a big paddock to play on. Uh, Knuckle Bones was fierce competition. Yeah. Four Square, was that the one with the four squares where you hit a ball around it? Yep. Yeah, that's one. That was that was great too. And, of course, when I went on to secondary school, we played a version of that on a court called Fives, which is like oh, sort of squash played by hand. Fives, so, yeah. Nelson College, Fives, the Fives Court, addicted. Yep. <laughs> that was my game. Fives. Who recalls fives? Two, one, zero, one. And of course, you love your play. This is the, you even bought in a hula hoop. You bought in props. I like walking with play things, especially because it is play week here in Aotearoa. And it really got smiles the whole way down Karangahapi Road, all the way past the motorway entrances. People smiled watching me with those hula hoops. And I don't, I'm a terrible hula hooper, but you can lay them on the ground and make hopping games with that. But back in school, we played a lot of dodgeball which is intense. And then mm-hmm. um, I never heard of gutterball till I came here, but I think it's, you know, three pieces of wood in a triangle, so effective. And I just always thought when I was relieving in schools that we needed more handball in outside of the classroom yes. and the little handball library. So if you had a big open court, kids would go, kids are take it very nice. seriously. Year six, it gets intense. Good on you. All right, uh, I time for I've been thinking, Peter Dunn, why don't you start on this? Well, yeah, I, look, I've been thinking quite a lot of late about heritage buildings, particularly because we've got this big issue here in Wellington with the future of the town hall. I've got to declare an interest. I am a passionate supporter of preserving heritage buildings. I wouldn't knock anything down if I had my way. 
I think that's probably unrealistic, but it got me thinking about the issue of it's one thing to declare a building a heritage building. It's something else altogether, as we're finding out in, in Wellington, and I can give you another example of a community group I'm involved with, which has a heritage building on lease, which uh, now we find we've got to have that um, seismically strengthened. We can't afford to do it. So I'm coming to the point of saying, well, given that heritage classification is handed out by Heritage New Zealand, it's a national thing. I actually think that the maintenance and, and upgrading and protection of heritage buildings should be a crown responsibility, in other words, funded centrally, so you don't have councils or local organisations struggling to promote funding to protect the heritage building that, they, that they've got. I think that that should be a national responsibility, and uh, I'd like to see that Heritage New Zealand, the Department of Conservation and the government yeah. all work out a combined national funding package, maybe something like the British National Trust or some sort okay, of model akin to that. But I just think if we're going to have heritage buildings, we need to preserve them, and we need to make sure they can be preserved. You're falling down on the... Yeah, we've discussed this at length on the panel. Very interesting, you know, what price heritage when you have something like the Wellington Town Hall, which is just ballooning astronomically. Um, yeah, thank you, Peter. All right, Bootsy Moran, I've been thinking. Well, Wallace, um, I've been thinking we've had so much fun talking about play and games. Name your street. Name your street growing up. Before the internet, before cars were like Peter's street coming through, I was on 26th Street. I would grab my rollerblades. I would go up. It was like a 20-minute rollerblade, and I'd play street hockey. And we'd put the nets up. And we'd play all Saturday. Was it a cul-de-sac? No, it was not. But even <laughs> I just learned yesterday because I was planning a play date in a cul-de-sac. It's a French word, and the French don't even use that word for the end of a street. It was a middle throughway street, but because it was 1996. So you just yell out, car! <laughs> yeah, car, car! And then we'd all go to the side, and the car would cruise by, and I they smiled. I can recall doing that. So mine was, uh, uh, there you go, there's a challenge to you. What was your street growing up? Mine was 8 Myers Road in Manarewa. And yeah, you were you'd you'd play on the Peter. I'd play marbles in the gutter. Yep, remember that we used to do that. We used to we used to do lots of things with our bikes up and down the street. We'd race. We'd do all sorts of things, uh, and and it was a bit of a haven. And we'd go from house to house. And That's it. You know, the big rule was you'd be home for dinner. That's yes. it. And we, we, we'd go from neighbour to neighbour, house to house, and have a wonderful time. And you'd know your community as a result. Absolutely. Yes, you know. I met three neighbours yesterday in the cul-de-sac going, we should have a play week thing here. And I think it's about making safe spaces, sharing the roads with kids. What's changed? Traffic, the internet. I think the internet giving shortcuts. Because my street did not get busy until internet gave maps that gave shortcuts. Yeah, I think the internet, uh, television, all those things that drag people inside. Uh, You know, We used to be home from school and we'd be out to play. No one would know my road was a road until the internet showed it was there because mm. you'd just stay on the main drag. But once you learn a shortcut... I'm feeling quite sad now to think that um, playing... That, what a wonderful memory, playing marbles in the gutter. My throat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's your Goodness street? Stay in your street. Yeah. All right, time for uh, the panel. RNZ National, we have Bruce Moran and Peter Dunn this afternoon. 2101 is our text number.